Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Exit strategy, the daughter of a Canadian trying to get out of Gaza, shares her fears and frustration that he still has not been allowed to cross the border to safety. The fog of war and post-war. An anti-terrorism expert says Israel has no good options in Gaza beyond brutal street-to-street fighting and no good plan for after it's all over. It was funds while it lasted. Sam Bankman-Fried is facing more than a century behind bars after a jury finds him guilty of stealing billions of dollars from his cryptocurrency clients. A journalist describes the courtroom moments she's still shocked to have witnessed. It sounds like a running joke, but it's not. Adidas really has released a very expensive super shoe that can only be used in one race. And a marathoner tells us the environmental price is worse than the sticker price. Beak of the devil, identifying loose geese is a lot less loosey-goosey now thanks to new state-of-the-art facial recognition technology that can identify the bird making a mess on your lawn through its distinctive bill. And ringside seats, a Swiss village is torn apart by a dispute over cowbells, as in bells worn by cows, that has devolved pretty quickly into a real gong show. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that's behind the chimes. Over the past three days, more than a 1,000 foreign nationals have crossed the border out of Gaza into Egypt, with more expected to do so tomorrow. But few, if any, of those who make the crossing will likely be Canadian. Sources have told the CBC that Canadians may be granted passage across the Rafah border crossing as early as Sunday or Monday, but that's not soon enough for Dahlia Salem. Her father is one of hundreds of eligible Canadian citizens, permanent residents, and their family members who want to get out of Gaza. We reached Dahlia Salem in London, Ontario. Dahlia, when, when Canadians finally do get the go-ahead and get that permission to cross the border, is your father going to be ready? Is he ready to go now? Um, as far as we know, as mm-hmm. far as at the most contact we've been able to make with him, he is ready and just waiting for us to give him the go to go. But if we don't tell him to go, he's not going to make it like on his own just because it's a quite a dangerous trip. When did you last talk to your father? Yesterday, my husband was able to get in touch with him through um, a relative who's kind of staying nearby in the area. So this person's phone is still picking up reception. So my husband called him and asked him to walk over to where my dad was. And he spoke to him and told him just to be ready because there seems to be like more more confirmed news that the evacuation for Canadians will be happening. Mm-hmm. We were hoping today, but it didn't. So we were hoping in the next few days. And we say we said, stay put, don't go anywhere until we call again. The situation you described really underlines, you know, how hit and miss, how difficult it is to get in touch. His phone isn't always working. And even if it is, it's hard to get through, right? 
Yeah, his phone has just stopped picking up any reception since Tuesday completely. And we're just trying to just find any way to call him. You sound very tired. This is the first time we've spoken, but I hear a weariness in your voice. I am tired, angry, hurt, broken, everything you can describe, everything. Did you think that your father would still be in this position? I mean, did you imagine that he'd still be waiting to get out at this stage? No, I did not at all. Um, Wars have happened before. This is not the first war in Gaza. This is not the first war I had to be involved in helping a family member to evacuate. Mm -hmm. The communication with global affairs has always been a hit and miss. Mm -hmm. But this one just for sure tops them all. This one has been the most chaotic and the most um, one that just provides lack of clarity and transparency and information, to be honest. I've assisted my husband get out in 2008. There was another evacuation in 2014. My, my younger sibling was there. I had to help evacuate him. And this all happens, just, just our luck that in all these wars, we end up having a family member there just visiting loved ones. I'm sorry you're going through this and that your family is going through this, Dahlia. How often are you calling Global Affairs at this point? I'm pretty sure they know me personally by now. <laughs> I have been calling a lot. Um, I will say, though, the agents are very respectful. They're very nice. They're understanding, and they, they're doing their best with the information that they provided. So when the list of evacuees was published, I spoke to an agent, and they said, we are working on it. And I said, I'm sorry, at this point, this is not enough. So I did end up speaking to a supervisor, and he reassured me it is not any negligence on Canada's part. He reassured me that they are doing their best, they are working overtime, but ultimately it is Israel and Egypt who decide and publish which country goes on which day. And who and who's on those lists? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said Canada is, quote, pushing on our friends in Israel and our friends in Egypt, working with Americans and others to make sure that the Canadian families get on the list, end quote. It doesn't sound like you think that that's the case. Why? Well, because if that's the case, I don't know what the Americans have done. I don't know what the UK has done, Germany, Finland, Mexico. I can name many other countries. They obviously seem to be doing something in terms of pressure that Canada has not done yet because I think Canada is capable and I think Canada has the power to apply that pressure and say, uh, please allow at least 100 of our citizens, at least the most elderly, at least the most people in need, at least the women and children there, at least make priorities of who can leave. Uh, my dad is in his 60s, so I'm pretty sure he's fit. And I would be okay with him being, you know, on the second or third day of Canadians evacuating. But do something, show something, do something. Where is your, your father right now? Uh, my father has moved around five times already, and the end location he's right now where he's at is, is a vacant land that he owns, just land that had olive trees. They set up tents there with his brothers, and they just, they're just they sleeping there. They set up tents with uh, ni like nylon material, um, and they're sleeping on mattresses that are as thin as, I would say, not even 10, 15 centimeters. I have pictures, like he managed to send us pictures when they first set up there, when he had some sort of internet he picked up um, at a market. So my siblings and I were losing it here. We were just like, send us pictures because we, I need to know what your living situation is like. I just, for just, I need to see it. Um, and to tell you, like, I couldn't eat two days straight. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything when he sent those images. Um, and my grandma, who, who he's there to be with, she's um, in a wheelchair. She's. She's very elderly, 
and she doesn't process that there's a war. She's struggling. She's um, for the washroom. There's no toilet. Yeah. They had to make do. They just set up like this tent and dug a hole in the ground. I'm sorry, this is graphic, but that's the reality. Yeah, and they're cooking in water that is probably not clean because they just fill it up in jugs, um, whatever they can get their hands on. What is he? What is your father saying to you about how he's feeling and all of this? Obviously, he's sending you pictures and, and giving you the updates to keep you you calm as well and stay in touch. Yeah, but what's he I, I think the, he's the reason um, I haven't maybe gone into a mental like health spiral, like in a really deep depression. I think he's the reason because he's very strong. So when we were like, are you really going to sleep in a tent? And he, he said, you know, at least I have a tent. Most people don't. Some people are sleeping on the streets. There's thousands in the UN schools taking shelter in the hospitals. So he said, I'm just fortunate to have a tent. And when I say, did you eat today? He would be like, yes, very good food. I'm like, so what is it? He's like, it was really good. Well, what was it? (laughs) And I was like, well, I'm glad to know you're eating because I'm not eating. And he said, why are you not eating? No, you should be eating. Don't don't do that to yourself. He just wants to make sure you're okay. He's very strong, I think, yeah, just the way he's built. He was supposed to be back in Canada already, as I understand it. So you and your family had some news for him when you were able to speak earlier this week. Is that right? Yeah. So his flight was supposed to be for October 31st because that was my sister-in-law's due date. Mm -hmm. Um, And she ended up having her baby actually October 30th. And my brother was able to call him that day and tell him that they have a son um, and they named him Sammy after my dad. How did he react? Oh, he was very happy. And I think it hurt because like he was supposed to be here. And like we were very happy that the baby's here and he's healthy. But it just comes with such a pain at the same time that I don't know. A part of me was like, maybe this child is here in case anything happens to my dad. This this child is here to carry his name, his legacy. I don't know. Oh, Dahlia. When he, he does come home, what will you say? What will you do, do you think? No more traveling from now on. (laughs) No more. (laughs) Dahlia, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dahlia Salem's father, Sammy, is one of hundreds of Canadian citizens and permanent residents who want to leave Gaza. We reached Ms. Salem in London, Ontario. Canadians were not allowed to cross the border out of Gaza today, but hundreds of others were. Among those who made the crossing were Elizabeth and Majid al-Nakla of Scotland. They're the in-laws of Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef. For the record, here's Mr. Youssef speaking today after they had arrived in Egypt. Hugely relieved, of course, and it was a special moment for me to be able to phone up my 14-year-old while she was in her school break to tell her that Granny uh, and Grandpa are coming home. Uh, And that's a moment uh, that was was very special. We're obviously as a family really pleased that they're coming back and they're going to be in relative safety. But also distressed because the situation continues to be that innocent men, women and children, including some of Nadia's family, like her brother who are still in Gaza, are suffering uh, an unimaginable horror. And that's why, although my mother-in-law and father-in-law are safe and, and hopefully will be back here in Scotland very soon, we'll continue to raise our voice to call for that ceasefire I think is needed now more than ever before. Scottish First Minister Hamza Yusuf speaking today after his wife Nadia's parents were able to cross the border out of Gaza.
He faces over a hundred years behind bars, but it took just a few hours for a jury to decide on a verdict in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried. That jury found the one-time head of the crypto exchange FTX guilty on all seven of the charges he faced, including fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. The charges stemmed from allegations that he dipped into the cryptocurrency funds he was supposed to be holding for clients to fund lavish land deals and make exorbitant political donations. Reporter Elizabeth Lopato has been covering the trial for The Verge. She's in New York City. Elizabeth, your article starts um, with with quite a moving moment, actually. You focus on the reaction of Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. Can you tell our listeners what you saw in that moment that made such a big impression? Yeah. So as um, the verdict was being read, Sam didn't move and didn't. he seemed sort of um, expressionless. But his parents, um, his father doubled over. Uh, his mother put her hands over her face and was perhaps crying. It seemed like it was really devastating for them. And it was it was actually quite heavy in the courtroom. And that was a very heavy, very somber moment. So it really stuck with me uh, when I was thinking about how I would sum up the verdict. Yeah, I wonder how it compares to the tone of the trial up until that moment. Up until that moment... Oh, it's hard to say. Uh, there were there was a certain amount of ex- exasperation with Sam Bankman-Fried when he took the stand for um, his own defense, mm-hmm. because he kept answering questions that were not the questions that were being posed to him. He was often evasive. He just didn't seem all that credible. Um, and you could see the the judge getting fed up with him. You could see the jury getting fed up with him. Um, and you know, even earlier in the trial, there had been some big emotional moments. Um, Caroline Ellison. She did cry on the stand when she talked about uh, the worst month of her life, where she realized that this this whole scheme was going to come to light, um, and she felt relieved, but she was also obviously miserable. Um, but for me, like the biggest moment for her was when she was kind of trying to choke back tears. You know, she didn't really want to cry on the stand, and she said, um, "If you had told me that." when I started at Alameda that I would be here today, uh, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, And she seemed to have been really horrified by her own ethical slide. And that, that I found, I found that very moving. There was this sort of sense of um, snowball effect that came from all of this testimony. You, you also wrote that, that you were surprised that Bankman Free didn't just plead guilty. Why do you think he took his chances with a jury? He's a gambler. Um, that's that's uh, been a huge part of his personality. You know, he has been in interviews saying that he would, he could flip a coin and, you know, heads made the world twice as good and uh, tails annihilated it. He would flip the coin and he would keep flipping the coin. It seems like there's just this, this part of his personality that is very into risk. I think faced with this situation, you know, of, of certain jail time and the possibility that he could get off, you know, however slim, he decided to take his chances. And the result of that was essentially dragging the names of everybody who was closest to him in the world through the mud. Then there was the other gamble, as you've already talked about a bit, deciding to testify or his legal team deciding that or allowing him to to testify. Uh, There was another moment you've spoken about or written about when the jury wasn't there. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, so there was... <laughs> it's still surprising you what happened in court, right? It's still, it's still quite yeah, something. It, I, 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 can't believe I, I can't believe I saw it. Uh, 
there was a preview of what his testimony was going to be like because there was um, a question of whether some evidence could enter the court. So he said, okay, we're going to do an evidentiary hearing. Put your witness on the stand. Let's ask some questions. We'll let the prosecutors ask their questions, and then I will rule. And it was unbelievably bad. And we started getting, like, these, like, word salad answers that were, they felt like, little like boutique lies you know like he was threading the needle of what he could say without obviously lying and also trying to obfuscate what he was saying so you know he didn't seem honest and he also didn't seem sorry and those two things are things that judges think about when it comes to sentencing Mm -hmm. so this was potentially really catastrophic it's also interesting to hear all of this because as you well know he managed to convince a lot of people a lot of smart people, a lot of very successful and powerful people, that he was a visionary, uh, right? So where does that guy fit in to who you've described? I, I think we saw glimpses of him on the defense. There was a kind of character that he was playing that I think is pretty familiar to all of us, you know, the sort of rumpled genius who, like, is, like, otherworldly and doesn't really understand normal worldly concerns, but, like, is very good at math or whatever. Um, you know, the physicist who can't drive, right? And... That, I think, was a character that he played very, very well, you know, with the hair and the rumpled clothes and the Toyota Corolla. He was certainly aware of that. And so I think that was part of it. But I think one of the things that's true about crypto generally is that nobody believes it can be as simple as it is. And so they think, I must have misunderstood something. Clearly, I don't understand this. This isn't all it can be because this seems silly. There's got to be something else here, and I'm just too stupid to understand it. And I think that the combination of you know, this guy looks like a genius and acts like a genius. And this is a sophisticated financial thing that maybe I don't understand. And all of the money really provided a smokescreen for what was very simple and very clear behavior. We know that that Sam Bankman-Fried is planning at this point to appeal. But when we talk about the sentencing, uh, you know, for this case, and when you, when you mentioned that he didn't seem repentant or, or honest on the stand, how do you think that's going to play into into how many years he gets in this case? That's going to come down in March. I would be very surprised if Judge Lewis Kaplan doesn't throw the book at him. Um, you know, I uh, you could see Kaplan getting frustrated with Bankman Freed on the stand and interrupting the flow of questioning to sort of pin him down. And that's never a good sign. You don't want to make the judge angry. Um, that's that's <laughs> that's just not a good look. Um, so I, I think that that's absolutely going to be a consideration because there is a lot of leeway um, in in these kinds of um, financial uh, crimes. You know, uh, some white collar criminals never go to jail. Some of them go to jail, like Bernie Madoff, for a very long time. So I think he has just tilted himself towards a very long time. And I have to say, I will be surprised if it's less than 20 years. Elizabeth, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this was helpful. It was. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. Elizabeth Lopato is the science editor for The Verge. We reached her in New York City. A dispute has split the residents of a small Swiss village into two factions, those who want more cowbell and those who do not. Niklaus Lundsgaard Hounsen is the mayor of the village of Arvangen. We gave him a ring. Mayor, are you for or against cowbells? 
I like cowbells and I like to listen to them. So that's my simple answer. Okay. So that sounds like you're pro. <laughs> well, I'm pro the bells, but I'm not really pro this uh, initiative, which mm-hmm. was uh, submitted because I think it's not a, a very helpful instrument. Is this a petition you're talking about? Um, well, it's actually more than a petition. Mm-hmm. It's a so-called initiative, which means the people who are allowed to vote, they can sign that. And uh, then the authorities have to deal with it. And we have to submit it to the uh, public vote of our community, of our town. A petition would be less uh, important. It would just be to take it uh, to submit it and we can do what we like with it. But the initiative is a more formal instrument which is uh, obliging the authorities to to act later. Well, let's talk about the cowbells themselves, Niklaus. How many Mm -hmm. cows with cowbells are actually in Arvang? That's a good question. Nobody asked me that. I don't know. (laughs) I would say there, well, there are actually within the village or close to the village or the town there we have let's say five to six farms and i think all of them have cows not all farmers put bells at their cows but most of them do so i would let's say there might be between 50 and 100 cows on the lawns on in the green but are they hanging out by by neighbors windows uh, well, they are, can be quite close because okay. our town, there are different areas of, of houses and in between there are is Greenland and at the side of, of these houses is Greenland. So it's, it's quite possible that uh, the cowbells are 10 meters, 20 meters from a house away, you know. Mm-hmm. It sounds beautiful what you're describing uh, and I'm sure that that beauty is part of what draws people to your village. But it's it's and it is people who had just moved to to the area, new residents who started filing these complaints. What have they said? I think these two couples, they live in, let's say, more modern houses, very close to one of of these uh, green pastures. I I don't know actually how long they live in the community, in the town. And I hadn't contact with them because if you get a formal complaint, then uh, it's a legal procedure and Mm -hmm. you don't just actually discuss with these people informally. But I think they just really were concerned about the noise, not during the day, but at night when they would like to sleep. Well, don't the cows sleep at night? Uh, well, they, I think they may sleep, of course, but they also walk around and they come in sometimes in, in the morning early. They go back to the farm to give their milk or they go out to the Greenland in the evening from the farm. So there are actually different movements during the day and during the night, which, of course, can't be controlled. They are The cows are not obliged to sleep you know, no, and sure. to be quiet. They can do what cows. they want. Yeah, they do what they want. So these these two couples lodged the these initial complaints, uh, as you've said, and we've talked about at the beginning of our conversation, the initiative and the reaction to those complaints. But can you just tell me what the farmers have been saying before it got to the initiative level? What were you hearing in response to the complaints? Well, I think they were, of course, angry or offended by these uh, claims. Um, They had afterwards the right to express themselves uh, towards the authorities. And they uh, said, I think, that they uh, pretend that the noise is is not bad or is not too strong and that they actually see it as a part of their rights to have the cows in the Greenland with the bells. So actually they refused to to make a compromise. And so at the moment, uh, actually there is 
this complaint procedure is still ongoing formally, but it's not the, my community or my authority which will decide about it, but it's a level higher where it's uh, really? people are in charge, yes. It's a, on a regional level, there's a representative of the state government who is in charge of such complaints in a region of let's say 20, 30 towns. And so that's this person who will decide about it. Does that make it harder or easier for you? Because obviously Switzerland is it's known for neutrality. You're the mayor. You're you're trying to juggle, you know, all of these these feelings from all of the residents yes. there. So is it better for you that it's out of your hands or worse? Well it, it I would say it's quite practical at the moment because we have <laughs> the at Swiss the same way, time yeah. this initiative. And in in my town, it's more actually more a political question than a legal one because of this initiative. And so we will have our focus on on this level. When you talk about politics, the BBC reporting on what is happening in your village said that a right wing party campaigned last month on a slogan that read, quote, so that Switzerland stays Switzerland. So is this about cowbells in your view or is there something bigger at play, Mayor? Well, that's a good question. With it's difficult to answer to it because I would say it could be that some of those people who signed the initiative and who have this feeling that they want to protect these cowbells and church bells, that they have the same political background as those you mentioned from this Schweizerische uh, Volkspartei, the People's Party. That's possible, but of course we don't know of of, of those one thousand mm-hmm. people who signed it what political background they have. But I would say the. At any rate, this political party you mentioned, they are certainly positive to what's going on here in our uh, town, mm-hmm. I would say. Many of our listeners are probably just learning about your village for the first time in the context of this story. So, yeah. You told us a little bit about it and what it looks like. What do you want people to know about this place other than the cowbells? Yeah, let me see. It's a very nice town, which is situated about in the middle, halfway between our national capital, Bern, and the economic capital, Zurich. So we we are quite centrally within Switzerland. It's a nice mixture of innovation, of high tech, and then of countryside and also soft tourism, as we say, Mm -hmm. on the other side. If only people could agree on the cowbells. Yeah. (laughs) Mayor, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your interest. Niklaus Lundsgaard-Hounsen is the mayor of the village of Arvangen, and that is where we reached him. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Israel says it will not back down. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected calls from the U.S. for a humanitarian pause in the fighting to get desperately needed supplies into Gaza. Mr. Netanyahu said there would be no ceasefire unless Hamas returns the hostages. Israeli troops have surrounded Gaza City, laying the groundwork for brutal street-to-street fighting with Hamas militants. 
According to the Hamas-run health ministry, more than 9,200 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. Today, the ministry accused Israel of targeting a convoy of ambulances, leaving a hospital in Gaza City. Daniel Byman is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the author of A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Daniel, we know Gaza City is surrounded by Israeli troops. What do you think the IDF is planning to do next? The Israeli military seems to be steadily encroaching into Gaza City. The main goal is to target Hamas leaders and the organization in general. This is through troops on the ground and also through an air campaign, uh, finding and destroying Hamas tunnels, ammunition caches, and ideally rescuing hostages. The logistics, though, the reality of fighting in such a densely populated place with narrow streets and the tunnels you mentioned, just illustrate what that could be and look like. Fighting in Gaza is a nightmare for any military. The city is closely built, and as a result, it's hard for soldiers who are coming in to uh, be able to communicate with one another, to work together in large groups, to have surveillance that gives them a sense of the overall battlefield picture. Because of the density, it's easy for small groups of Hamas fighters to hide and ambush Israeli troops. The presence of tunnels makes this much harder, where Hamas can move its people underground and pop up behind Israeli forces. And then, of course, the most difficult thing of all is the presence of significant numbers of civilians. Mm -hmm. And this provides some degree of shields for Hamas, but also tremendous risk to the civilians. When you consider everything that you've just said, uh, as well as the risks to the hostages that are still being held captive, we don't know exactly where, when we look at that stated goal, that, that Israel has of dismantling Hamas, rooting out Hamas, as, as they've said. How realistic is that? It's an exceptionally difficult goal. Uh, Hamas is deeply embedded within Gaza. For over 15 years now, it's really served as the government of Gaza. And huge numbers of people in Gaza have worked with Hamas, have family members who work with Hamas. And even putting that aside, Hamas has educational, religious, uh, humanitarian projects throughout the Strip. So it'll be very hard to remove Hamas. And frankly, there's no one to take its place. Is this then the most effective way, given what you know about the Israeli military strategy and Hamas, is this the most effective way to get at that goal? The problem for Israel is there's no good way to get at this goal. From an Israeli point of view, you have really a neighboring state and government that went in and killed 1,400 of its people and then went back and hid among the civilian population. And so Israel can't live with that perpetual threat, but the ways to go after Hamas leadership are exceptionally difficult and um, in the end probably will at best achieve limited results. They have announced you know, that they've killed a couple of people in the leadership, in the Hamas leadership, military leadership. How significant are those killings? So some of these figures are significant within Hamas. And Israel has shown in the past that if it can target enough of the leadership of its adversaries, it can severely degrade the adversary. But Hamas has a very deep bench. It has many leaders, and it has many followers who can take the place of the leaders over time. So the problem for Israel isn't simply removing large numbers of current leaders. It's what to do about the long term and preventing Hamas from regrowing. Do you think Israel and the IDF are, are strategizing well to consider that, or is this just short term? 
for now at least it's short term. Uh, it's hard for me to tell mm-hmm. for sure if there's a long term plan, but what Gaza really needs in the long term is someone to take over and make sure Hamas doesn't come back. And I don't see any good candidates for that. What are the other long term options, though? So one long term option is trying to rehabilitate the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank. This has been discredited in part by its own corruption and mismanagement, but in part because it's been marginalized by Israel. And as a result, it's seen by most Palestinians as irrelevant at best and a collaborator with Israel at worst. And so as Israel is making plans, it needs to think about how to better work with more moderate Palestinian voices. How much worse do you think it could get for people in Gaza? I think it's it's just going to get much worse. Um, we're already seeing, of course, significant numbers of uh, dead Palestinian civilians. Uh, the effects of um, losing electricity and water are going to mount. Um, and ground operations historically have tended to be um, quite deadly in terms of the destruction they do to cities. So none of this is good news. What is the end game for Hamas here, if if that can even be answered? Why do you think they did this? So there's a lot we don't know, but let me suggest Mm -hmm. several reasons. Uh, So one is simply a sense of anger and revenge, that they feel Palestinians have been suffering and now it's Israel's turn. Another is to make Hamas more relevant. It's been slowly failing at governing Gaza, and this is a way of the group reestablishing itself as what it would call a resistance organization. And indeed, what it's done has electrified many Palestinians and many people in the Arab world. You mentioned Hezbollah, uh, backed by Iran, of course. Uh, its leader spoke spoke today uh, and said that that his fighters were already, you know, part of cross border fighting with Israel along the border with Lebanon, is signaling that this could escalate and become a wider dispute. What is your sense on that? Is that saber rattling, or is that going to happen? The speech that the Hezbollah leader gave today was both a bit of boasting, but it contained a lot of caution. So he was clearly trying to signal that Hezbollah sides with Hamas and his organization's opposition to the United States and, of course, to Israel. But he was also very careful not to say that Hezbollah plans to escalate. He was careful to say that this was a Hamas operation only, not something that Hezbollah was part of. Um, and he even called for humanitarian ceasefires. Um, from his point of view, to protect Gaza, but that's not a way of making the conflict become a regional all-out war. And Hezbollah has a lot to lose if that happens, so I think he's trying to walk a very uh, careful line. But that said, when we're talking about wars, they can easily get out of hand even more than this has already. Daniel, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Daniel Byman is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the author of A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism. He's in Washington, D.C. After Tigas Tsefa set a blistering new world record time at the Berlin Marathon this year, she wasn't photographed kissing a medal. Instead, she kissed her shoe. The runner was wearing the next generation of so-called super shoe, the Adidas Adizero Adios Pro Evo 1. The shoe is now available for mere mortals to purchase, if you can find it, and if you can afford it. 
To run in them, they will run you a cool $650. Oh, and before you buy them, you might find this relevant. The shoes are only designed to be worn for a single marathon. Carolyn Stout is an avid marathoner and a member of the environment-focused Green Runners Group. We reached her in Winchester, Massachusetts. Caroline, how, how does that, that price, $650, that's, that's Canadian, how does that price tag sit with you? Not well. <laughs> were you, were you yeah. surprised to see it? I, I was, I was. I maybe shouldn't have been, but when you see that there's a shoe for 500 US, six, 650 Canadian, and it's good for one marathon, yeah. it almost feels like you're reading an Onion article. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very real. Uh, but it you've, is very you've looked real. into this a little bit. Certainly, you know about this kind of footwear and how useful or not it can be when you're r- running. Yeah. What do you think makes it so expensive and so unique? These carbon-plated shoes, they are more expensive because of the tech that goes into them, the carbon plate. But most of the carbon-plated shoes, and I apologize for using U.S. dollars, but are somewhere in the 200-something U.S. dollars. This specific pair, the prices far exceeds anything we've seen before. My bigger focus on this shoe and my bigger shock on this shoe is really around the the single-use aspect of it, essentially, that they are advertising a shoe that is good for one use and the environmental impact of that. How long should a pair of running shoes last, even if you're a hardcore runner? Yeah, so brands typically will advertise that their shoes are good for 300 to 500 miles. I would argue that you can wear a shoe for a lot longer than that. (laughs) If you take Um, care of it? if, If you take care of it, Some people say you should rotate shoes. Some people say that doesn't matter as much. Um, You can certainly, you know, there are opportunities to to do small repairs on shoes. And sometimes you just, you wear them until they no longer feel good. I think having an arbitrary, oh, 300 miles, it's time to throw them out um, is problematic. I think people should be wearing them until they no longer feel comfortable. Some of the super shoes do have lower lifespans, but this is the first one I've seen that has been for essentially one marathon and done. They say, you know, one or two training runs to to get comfortable in it and then one marathon. And the environmental impact of that is is extraordinary. <laughs> it strikes me that, that sneakers in, in general, you know, there are lots of really expensive shoes that are not sneakers, as you know, and those prices go up and up yeah. and up. But they can often be repaired, restored, resold, continue to be worn for years and years and years. Sneakers, yes. as far as I know, <laughs> because I've asked, you you can't get them resold, right? So what is the broader environmental impact? To make a pair of, of sneakers is the carbon footprint is about 14 kilograms of CO2. Americans looking just at Americans um, throw out approximately 300 million pairs of sneakers a year. Oof. They can't be repaired. They can't be recycled. They just break up into smaller and smaller pieces when they end up in a landfill. So lots of environmental impact in the production, but then also once they get thrown out, again, they can't be recycled because there are too many materials. It's too complex. And they just break up into smaller and smaller pieces, ultimately into these microplastics that we hear about in the oceans. And running is such a a low environmental footprint sport, right? When we think about it, it's just a person lacing up and running, but this, this is, this is quite different. It it should be. And the, the organization that, um, 
that I belong to, the Green Runners, we spend a lot of time, um, a lot of our energy, our mission is to reduce the environmental impact of the sport of running. And some of that is making people aware of the environmental impact. I think a lot of people do see it as a very simple sport, like you just said, lace up your shoes, put on a pair of shorts and go. But there's there's a lot more to it, and especially around um, around the clothing and the shoes. Yeah. And And runners love their clothing and their shoes. <laughs> they really do. They love the new colors. They love when something is advertised as helping them go just a little bit faster. And so, you know, a big part of what, what our mission is, is helping to educate people and realize, you know, in fact, that that comes at a consequence. Well, also, just we've seen some researchers who who say for the average runner, a shoe, even like this $650 one, this super shoe, might scrape a couple of minutes, you know, shave a few minutes at yeah. most off a marathon time. Um, so, I mean, what's your advice to people who, who you know, want to run like their heroes, their marathon heroes? It, does it really yeah. come down to a super shoe? You know, I don't know that it does for the for the everyday runner. Um, and I very much put myself in that category. I'm not a professional runner. I'm not making my living this way. But I also I don't blame runners and athletes for wanting to do better mm-hmm. and to find that that edge. Maybe it's their pre-race meal. Maybe it's getting an extra 30 minutes of sleep a night in the couple of weeks leading up to the race. Um, I really think it's more a question of the industry needing to change, probably coming down, frankly, to regulations um, needing to change. Mm-hmm. Do you think this shoe in particular is just for you know, hardcore runners or shoe collectors, you know, running shoe collectors, sneakerheads are, are, it's it's a huge part of the industry as well. Who's buying this shoe? You know, at this price tag, I'm not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) But, but what I do think is, I think that people, especially, I mean, this shoe, this specific shoe, the woman who wore it in Berlin broke the world record. That's, that's pretty good marketing for Adidas. (laughs) Sure is. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, people will go out there. People who have some disposable income to spend on the sport of running might say, Hey, this is fun. Let's, let's try it. So I think what I would love for people to think about is just realizing that, that that comes at more than an economic cost. It comes at an environmental cost as well. You know, really consider is those, are those two minutes worth it? Versus a pair of shoes that might last for a little bit longer. Uh, how, yeah. How often are you buying a new pair of sneakers? I buy a couple pairs a year and I try to source them from there's um, often actually returned stock because that's stock in the clothing and shoe industry that doesn't get resold. So I've found some sources where you can get the returned stock that would otherwise end up in a landfill. Caroline, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Carolyn Stout is an avid marathoner and member of the environment-focused Green Runners Group. She's in Winchester, Massachusetts. For Brian Cassie, things are looking up, after looking down for a bit longer than he was comfortable with. Yesterday afternoon, the Winnipeg man was one of six passengers on a charter flight out of the remote Ontario community of Sachigo Lake when one of the engines stopped working. Then the other engine unexpectedly ran out of fuel, forcing the pilot to make an emergency landing on a rural road near St. Andrews, Manitoba. That is the white-knuckle stuff of a Hollywood drama. Unless you're Brian Cassie, who's taking a decidedly down-to-earth approach to the whole experience. Uh, About 10 minutes from... When we landed, the left engine went out, 
Uh, I've never been on a plane where that happens, but I know they can fly with only one. So uh, everybody kind of took pictures and was joking about it. It was pretty exciting. And then uh, about 10 minutes later, uh, the pilot turned around and said, make sure your seatbelts are fastened and brace, brace, brace. And uh, probably 20 seconds after that, we were on the road. He did a really good job. Just uh, I think he avoided a couple of power lines and kept it nice and centered on the road. Um, it was actually very smooth. It was as smooth a landing as, as at the airport. So it was very uneventful from that perspective. Um, I was just wondering as well, like uh, I saw from your pictures, there were a lot of people there were uh, like RCMP on scene or anything like that. Uh, RCMP, fire, ambulance. Uh, there was a helicopter circling overhead for a little while, I guess just making sure everybody was okay. And when they found out there was no damage, no injuries, no uh, nothing really that required their attention, they just basically left. Uh, the RCMP kept the road blocked off until they can get the plane out of the way, I guess. But that was about it. You seem pretty like chill about the whole plane landing in the middle of the road thing. It's not every day, I guess, that happens to you. It's the first time for me, but honestly, it was pretty cool and sort of like a bucket list thing for me. I've, uh, you know, you always think about in the back of your mind, I wonder what would happen if this happened or if that happened. And in this case, I got to live out one of these experiences with no repercussions. And what was the reaction like just from some of the other people who were on the plane with you? Oh, well, everybody seemed pretty damn happy about it. <laughs> you know, um, a plane going down without power or on a road in a rural area, coming back from a remote northern location, having just flown over a lake, this was a very good outcome to what could have been a a really bad situation. That is a bafflingly calm Brian Cassie of Winnipeg speaking to the CBC's Gavin Axelrod about the emergency landing that he and five other passengers experienced yesterday just outside of St. Andrews, Manitoba. For $15,000 U.S., a B.C. naturopath offered families of autistic children treatments he claimed would help them, pills and enemas made from human feces. And for that, Jason Klopp has lost his license and agreed to pay a fine of $7,500. Fecal transplants are only approved in Canada for patients with C. difficile infection that hasn't responded to other therapies, and doctors and scientists warn that using it to treat autism is not only unproven, it's dangerous. Melissa Eaton first brought public attention to Mr. Klopp's claim. Her son is autistic. We reached her in Salisbury, North Carolina. Melissa, is this the kind of punishment you were hoping for here? Um, I was personally hoping for criminal charges, but I'm glad that his license has been revoked. And I wish that there was a, a larger fine because I don't feel like the fine was adequate based on how much he was um, taking in from parents, I feel like there was really not a punishment at all to him considering Mm -hmm. that one of, you know, just a treatment he was charging for one child was 15,000. So it's, it's half what he made off one, just one child. And there were hundreds, hundreds of families bought in. Yes. How did you first learn about Jason club? Um, he had actually came inside a group that I was monitoring, um, 
that was using other types of treatments, but he had came in a Facebook group called Health and Hope for Autism, and he did a Facebook Live. At the time, he stated he had been doing FMT treatments for about six months, and he was looking um, to answer questions for parents and have them come to the retreats that he was doing in Mexico. So he's doing these these fecal transplants in Mexico, as you've said. What was what exactly was he offering these hundreds of, of families for the fifteen thousand dollar fee? Um, he required a five thousand dollar down payment just just to sign up and have like a, a phone consult, and then to book for one of his retreats. Um, the remainder of the money was due, and basically what that consisted of it didn't include your travel or your medical freezer or any of the medicines that he suggested that children take before coming to him. It included the stay at the hotel in Mexico and the actual treatments, the six days of treatments that they did while you're there, and then 16 weeks of doses to take home. Lots of add-ons on top of add-ons. And the promise? What was that? Uh, Improvements to children's autism, um, improved speech, less meltdowns, basically reversal of symptoms and when you saw this what did you think you have an autistic you have a son who has autism what did you think at those claims um well i knew that fmt was not a treatment for autism it's not a not an approved treatment for autism and so i was immediately worried and i gathered as much information as i could and began reporting just to to underline what you said there, uh, doctors, scientists have said this is this is not proven. They also uh, are quite concerned because because it's 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 dangerous as well. You've been you've made it your mission really uh, to go into these groups and look out for 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 potential scams and try to warn other parents. Why did you want to do that? That's a lot to take on. Um, well, I felt compelled to because there. Inside these groups, there's all these vulnerable parents. Their their child's been given a diagnosis that they don't understand, and they're scared. And they some of them, some of them genuinely want to help their children, and they're convinced in these groups that if they don't do something, then they're failing their children. And then there's other parents who would do anything for their child not to be autistic, and so there's vulnerability either way. But um, I just felt like you know somebody. Somebody had to to raise the alarm on what was going on inside these groups. Mm-hmm. You've also described the, these groups as echo chambers, you know, and, and when people start to believe something, it's very hard to change their minds, particularly when health is involved and when the health of their children is involved, as you well know. So this, this punishment that's come down for Jason Klopp, it, it, do you think it's likely to change anyone's mind? I definitely don't because... What you know, like like I said, it it's an echo chamber, and so a lot of the a lot of the times people are are taught that you know the governments are the ones that have harmed their child with vaccines or chemicals or things like that, and so there's there's like this building of distrust against any type of authority, you know, that's like the groundwork for how this begins, and so they they play into that. Um, have you you've come across some other? promises, other treatments uh, as well. What kinds of things are on offer in these groups? Oh, there's um, more than you could ever imagine. Some of the worst ones um, is a product called MMS, uh, Miracle Mineral Solution, which is an industrial bleach, chlorine dioxide. It's given 
orally and in enemas and in humidifiers and baths and ear and eye drops. There's another um, product called GC Math, which is a blood product that's shipped um, from other countries like Japan and Bolivia. It's bought for $600 and injected into autistic children. Um, there's just all sorts of things, really. It must be difficult to be in those spaces all the time. Uh, what do you want to say to parents who might be listening who haven't clicked in yet to those groups? Uh, you know, there there's a supportive community out there of autistics who are willing to help you with your with your children. Um, all these these fads that promise a cure are it's not true. There's there's nothing you should be trying to cure. You should be supporting your children. You should be looking for ways that um, you can actually help them. And the the things that these people are wanting to sell you are not going to help. They're actually going to harm. Well, Melissa, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. We reached Melissa Eaton in Salisbury, North Carolina. In the 1980s and 90s, Diego Maradona became the most famous soccer player in the world because of what he did on the field, and he also got attention from the authorities for his reputation off it. Mr. Maradona failed drug tests and was banned from soccer multiple times for using illegal drugs, including at the 1994 World Cup. He only played two games there before he was sent home. And recently, the FBI released documents that suggested it was very interested in Mr. Maradona's behavior at the tournament, so much so that it was trying to track down one of the urine samples he gave before the tournament, which seems like maybe a misuse of the FBI's time, but I'm guessing it wasn't their number one priority. Of course, by that point, his legacy as an icon of the sport was unimpeachable, thanks to his many moments of glory and infamy on the pitch, including one moment that combined glory and infamy, the late soccer star's Hand of God goal in 1986. A year ago, Neil talked to Graham Budd of Graham Budd Auctions about the ball used in that historic game and the huge sum of money it was expected to fetch. Graham, as you know, this this game means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So first, let's start with what your connection is to this match that this infamous ball is from. No, absolutely. Well, as an England fan, of course, I watched it back in 1986, watched it with my father, I remember, and... um, at first, when that when that first goal happened, it wasn't really quite clear what what had happened. There was a lot of players protesting and this sort of thing. The commentator wasn't exactly sure to begin with, and then it became clear that as they played replays, that of course the the great man had um, had really cheated and um, you know put the ball into the net using his hand. Maradona. Um, and- Maradona, that's right. Um, and then, to be fair, a few minutes later, he scored probably one of the best goals in the history of football. So, you know, uh, which just makes it the most amazing match. But given uh, that the, the team you were supporting didn't win, does this auction yeah. come with any emotional baggage? Well, you know, it's 36 years ago. I am officially over it. So I can Good. I can safely report that, but it's it, I say that hand of God game as it's as it's known now. Really, you can um, you can talk to people all over the world, really, and people that 
were too young, to be, not even born when the match took place. But they they know exactly what you're talking about when you when you say that phrase. So it is. It's one of the iconic games of, of, of all time. Yeah, and, and the video, you, you know, even if you weren't watching it that day, the videos, the documentaries, uh, yeah, it's, it's still fascinating. Yeah. Glad you're over it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yes. talk about the ball <laughs> itself. What yes. kind of condition is it in? Um, match use condition. I mean, it's it, it, pretty much as it was as it left the, um, as it left the pitch. Uh, it was the only ball used for the whole 90 minutes of the game, um, as was the case then. So after 90 minutes, it, it's, um, it's quite a lot of, sort of scuff marks and things like that, which are part of its history. Um, it's a little bit deflated at the moment, and we're looking into whether it's possible to reinflate it again, but there are, you know, a potential conservation mm-hmm. problems with, with doing that with an old football. So we've got to think about that very, very carefully. And the scuff marks are actually quite useful because uh, we've been... We've been uh, using the, the high-tech, um, sort of high-definition high resolution imagery to match the uh, the ball with press photographs from the time, and that's been very useful because you know we, where those scuff marks are, we've we've got complete and absolute matches on our balls, which just further um, guarantees that it's absolutely the ball that was used in used in that match, which is would be reassuring for the buyer who's potentially having to spend quite a bit of money. Yeah, we'll talk about that, how much, just how much yeah. in a bit and who you think might yeah. buy it. But the person who's had it all this time is the ref mm. from that match, Ali Ben Nasser. Yes. Why does he want yes. to sell it now? It's been sitting in the cupboard for 36 years. We're in a World Cup year. Um, you know, the auction's just going to be a few days before the World Cup starts. And uh, I, I guess he has been influenced by uh, a sale that happened earlier in, in the year when um, the shirt that Maradona was wearing uh, was sold at, 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 an, at an auction uh, for what was a world record price for any piece of sports memorabilia. And also he wanted it to happen in England, which he still, which he believes is the sort of um, historical home of football. Lots of points of yeah. connection. He, of course, was yeah. was blamed uh, for missing yeah. that infamous handball. But I was I was reading that that he says that uh, the British coach actually said to him after the match that that he did well, but it was the linesman that he deferred to who was quote yeah. irresponsible. Yeah, that's his line. He he he's blaming his referee. Um, he, he he's honest enough to admit that he 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 didn't see the incident the way that the the players' bodies were um, in his line of view. It was impossible to, to actually for him to see um, that it had been handled. Let's talk about how much it could go for. Projections we've yeah. been seeing around four and a half million Canadian or three million British pounds. Mm-hmm. What are you mm-hmm. hearing from potential buyers? Through the publicity, we've you know we've had lots of um, lots of in- inquiries already from clients so it's all all looking good and um we're estimating it yes between two and a half and three million pounds uh and we've based that on the nearest comparable which is the maradona shirt that i mentioned a little bit earlier is likely to you know to beat the world record for a sports ball apart from you know obviously it has to be someone who is wealthy with a lot of money Mm. who do you think is going to buy this how do you hope that this piece of sports memorabilia is going to be remembered yeah, um, I mean, if I can quote the, the seller himself, the referee, I mean, his hope that is whoever does buy it, um, he just he, he's really offering it to the world now, you know, for somebody else to take charge of it. If it goes to a, a museum or an institution, which is possible, that's great. That means everybody will get to see it. But if it is bought by a private individual, he, he, he's very much hoping that that person would at least 
at, at times uh, would make, maybe loan it for exhibitions or to museums and that sort of thing so the rest of the world can get to see it and uh, enjoy it for um, yeah, the outstanding piece of football history, history that it is. Graham, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. From our archives, that was Graham Budd, the chairman of Graham Budd Auctions, speaking to Neil last October. In the end, the ball sold for the equivalent of over $3 million Canadian. You're lying on the couch trying to take a well-deserved after-work nap when... You weren't expecting anyone, you don't think. But when you get to the door... It's that goose from next door. And suddenly you remember you invited her and her entire extended family over for dinner. And here they all come. The worst part is you've met all of them before, several times. Most recently when you politely asked them to stop pooping on your front lawn and they politely declined. But you are blanking on all of their names. Well, worry no more, thanks to new Goose Facial Recognition Technology. After years of work, an international team of researchers, led by Sonia Kleindorfer of the Conrad Lorenz Research Center for Behavior and Cognition at the University of Vienna, has just unveiled goose recognition software that is about 97% accurate. So out of 100 geese you greet by name, three will glare at you and waddle away in a huff. That's pretty good odds. Scientists at the center study animal cognition, including the flock of geese that lives nearby. So it's extremely helpful for them to be able to tell which goose is Maria and which goose is Captain Von Trapp. It's Austria. I assume all the geese are named after characters from The Sound of Music. The software relies on the unique characteristics of a goose's beak to identify it. And it promises to make goose research easier for humans and significantly less intrusive for geese. Now you can just take a picture and run it through the database instead of going off on a wild goose face. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. As It Happens was produced this week by Leslie Amundsen, Cassie Argao, Katie Gelliff, Sheena Goodyear, Chris Harbord, Abby Hughes, Sarah Jackson... Devin Nguyen, Morgan Passy, Chloe Schantz-Hilkes, Kate Swoger, and Chris Trowbridge. Our technician is Reynold Gonzalez. John McGill is our director. Our writers are Lisa Brin-Rundle and my co-host Chris Howden. I recognize him from his beak. Zian Iros is our senior producer. And the executive producer of As It Happens is Austin Webb. We'd also like to thank some other people who helped us out this week. Allison Dempster in Calgary, Paige Parsons in Edmonton, Mary Catherine McIntosh in Halifax, Daryl Din in Labrador City, Great work on the toes, Daryl. Susan McKenzie in Montreal, Rafi Bujikanian and Paul McInnes in Ottawa, Pradyush Deal in Saskatoon, Olivia Bowden, Philip Drost, Rima Hamadi, Devin Haru, Melody Moyedi, and Luke Williams in Toronto, Bethany Lindsay and Ann Penman in Vancouver, Alex Panetta in Washington, and Suzanne Dufresne in Winnipeg. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howard. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.